Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On this week's programme, we are taking you around the world and to all corners of the cultural cosmos. We've got art, film and music on the agenda, and we'll be stopping by some of the globe's lesser shouted about cultural hotspots. First up, we visit the brand new Norwegian National Museum on Oslo's harbour. Then we'll be whizzing to Barcelona to find out from the organisers of Primavera how you host a first-rate music festival that fully integrates with your city year after year. And finally, make sure to pack your bikini. I'll be wearing mine as we'll be heading to Bali to find out about Indonesia's film industry from the founder of the, wait for it, Balinale. Stay tuned. All of that coming up on today's show. In the past couple of days, the new Norwegian National Museum opened in a purpose-built £550 million building on Oslo's harbour front next to the City Hall. Bringing together the national collections of crafts, architecture, design and art, the new museum by German-Italian architect Klaus Schuwerk is aiming to cement the Norwegian capital's position as an emerging cultural capital. You'll recall the new Munch Museum opened there two years ago and of course they have that wonderful opera house and the Astrup Fernley Modern Art Museum already. Monocle's Den Denmark correspondent Michael Booth went along to hear more about how the Norwegians have squeezed four museums of craft, design, architecture and art into one and to take a look at the new museum. The building is not without its critics, as Michael heard from passers-by, and inside he also had an unexpected encounter with a genuine art icon. I'm not very impressed by the building. I think it's too grey and uh, too big and it takes a lot of space around here. I love it. It's very kind of brutalistic and reminds me of the Barbican. So the word on the street is maybe a bit mixed, but already from the outside, the new Norwegian National Museum was growing on me. It's absolutely vast, but it conceals its bulk well, partly by cradling around the existing Nobel Museum. It's also a very discreet shade of slate grey. On top is a, a massive room which looks like a giant light box. It's called the Light Hall. The walls are super thin marble and the whole thing glows at night. First of all, I spoke to the museum director, Karin Hinsbo, about the process of amalgamating four museums into one. The aim was to have one national institution for a cultural and heritage for uh, arts, crafts, design and architecture uh, with a scope from the antiquity and up until present day. What you see in Norway in general in during the past uh, 10, 15 years is a general investment in culture. It's to uh, raise the awareness of uh, Norway as a cultural destination. It's a beautiful country, you know, rivers and mountains uh, uh, and everything, but it also has a rich culture. Oslo is getting kind of a reputation for art. There's the Astrup Fernley Museum and, and then a little bit further out of town, the Kistefoss Museum. Is there a sense in which a conscious decision has been made to take all of this wonderful oil money that you have in Norway and, and make yourselves the Abu Dhabi of the Nordics? I think you cannot uh, easily compare Norway to Abu Dhabi, I think. But, but Norway has been a country in a huge development since the 1960s. Norway was a completely different country 50 years ago, and it has gained wealth. 
And but what Norway is also doing is invest this capital in culture. And who are you hoping to attract to this museum? Uh, what we aim at uh, in the National Museum is we want to be there for everybody. We want to make uh, the arts accessible. How much of the aim of the museum is showcasing Norway to the world, to an international audience? That is, of course, very important. We are the National Museum in Norway, so our main focus is Norwegian uh, art history and, and crafts and architecture. It's the whole, uh, the whole history. Nothing occurs in a vacuum, and Norway's been part of the world all along. Maybe way up north, <laughs> but it's been a significant part of the world. And of course, international art has inspired Norwegian art scene and vice versa. So in our collection, we of course have a focus uh, on Norwegian uh, arts and craft and design and architecture, but we also have significant pieces by international artists. So we have this amazing monk collection, but we also have Van Gogh, we have uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, we have uh, Ming Vars, we have uh, a huge uh, variety. I mean, talking about monk, of course, I didn't name the recent monk museum that's opened about uh, 400 meters away from here. Uh, but you've got a scream, haven't you? Yes. Um, how does that work? Do they not want to have all of the screams over there that they, they could possibly can? It's not like you can just get a scream if you <laughs> want it. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Uh, Monk produced uh, four editions of the scream. So we have one, the Monk Museum has two, and then one was sold recently. It's in a private collection. Uh, and, and who's got the best one? Obviously, we got the most important one in the first one, but I don't really see it as a competition. I think it's uh, the New Monk Museum is a great museum. They got a great collection. The first exhibition is of new Norwegian artists, I think, who've never shown in the museum before in, in its previous forms. Is that right? What do you do when you open a national museum? We have this uh, amazing light hall, which would also be an international landmark, landmark in itself, I think. What are you going to do with that space? And by the end, we decided, okay, why not? Uh, what else are you going to do when you open the National Museum other than have a declaration of love to the Norwegian art scene as it is now? Uh, so why not see to what we have missed along the years? What have we not included in our collection? So that became a, a second uh, aim as well. So now we have this, uh, I think it's amazing, the show. It's wild and it's... Um, it's rich and it's colorful and it uh, has so many layers and so many uh, stories. So it just uh, makes me proud to be a part of uh, the Norwegian art scene today. Is there anything you're particularly looking forward to showcasing that perhaps from Nor the history of Norwegian art that hasn't had the attention or an artist that hasn't had the attention they deserved? Yeah, for instance, we uh, dedicated one entire room to uh, the Norwegian artist uh, Harriet Bakker. And I think that room has been just beautiful. And then I think... Um, She's like late, late 19th century, is that right? Yes, that's true. That's correct. And she was really important uh, in Norwegian art history and inspired so many artists after her. I think the, the first time I saw it yesterday, one the thing that really struck me about the building was that it wasn't a statement building. It wasn't um, a Guggenheim. It looks like a building that's going to be here for 100, 200 years. It looks like it's bedding in. It's going to take time to bed in. It's monolithic, it's very simple. This was never meant to be a new Guggenheim Bilbao. Uh, this is uh, monumental and discreet. And what is also important in this project is it's a future build uh, project and that means uh, the sustainability factor is really important.
After speaking to Karen Hinsbo, I was lucky enough to get an exclusive pre-opening tour of the new museum amid all the bubble wrap and the stepladders as they were still putting things in place. We ended up in the Munk Room, where a familiar face awaited behind a dust sheet, having only just been hung there the day before. I should add, I think there was something going on with the security system in the Munk Gallery, which my microphone picked up as interference. Hardly surprising, this particular painting has been stolen in the past. My name is Ingvill Ågårdsröster and I'm the project leader for the Collection Exhibition project. This project is really big. It's like 17 core groups working on their rooms. and How many pieces in all? 6,533. And that's reducing down a total collection of how many pieces? 400,000. You will be one of the first that sees this, this room. It came up yesterday. <gasps> Wow. So this is the Munk room. Yeah. So behind that white sheet... Yeah, you sheet, want to see it. Do I want to see it? Of course I want to see it. Definitely the best one. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first one as well. But to stand here in this room surrounded by 25 monks, something like that, it takes your breath away, it really does. Absolutely. It really is overwhelming, almost. Yeah. There's been... I have to say, there's been a lot of crying in this room. <laughs> Emotions yeah. after everything yeah. came up. It's quite, kind of touching to see... It's like seeing old friends again. It's 86 rooms all together, and it's 10,000 square metres, so it's a big, big, big project. And I think from my, my point of view, the most important thing is that Everybody has been working together, finding the common ground. What is this uh, exhibition going to be about? How are we going to represent our um, collections in the best possible way? And the whole purpose of this is to melt together all of our our collections into one, to show that this is one, we are one organisation, one museum. Are you nervous or excited about the opening? How do you feel about it? I'm excited. Very excited. For Monocle, at the new Norwegian National Museum in Oslo, I'm Michael Booth. Michael Booth there. Thanks, Michael. And now to Barcelona, where after a two-year pause, the city's infamous music festival Primavera Sound is back with a bang. This year's 20th anniversary edition is more ambitious than ever, stretching across two weekends to provide over 650 shows across 12 days, with pop royalty such as Lord and Charlie XCX, showing the main stage with mighty acts such as Gorillaz, The Strokes, Pavement and Tame Impala. Just before weekend two kicked off big style, Paige Reynolds, a wonderful singer herself, hopped into a golf buggy with Primavera Sound's Chief Innovation Officer Daniel Fletcher to get a tour of the festival site and talk about the challenges and excitements of bringing back the festival at such a huge scale. So we're kind of in the... We're in the sort of the middle of everything now. I've only been here where there's loads of people. It's quite strange to be here when it's completely empty. When do you start building the site? How long does this take? Three weeks since the day we opened, three, three weeks in advance. 
as always, the same day that we were opening gates, uh, we were still working on some finishings and things. And this year, it almost feels even more worth it because it's up for so long. So we've got two weekends. So kind of take me through what was the process of deciding to do two weekends. In 2020, we were almost sold out. Uh, then we have to, well, we, we all know what happened <laughs> by that time. Uh, so when we, again, to postpone <coughs> the festival to 2022, we, we had been already one year without selling tickets. So we thought what we could do, and, and the lineup, we, we were rolling over the, the lineup from 2020, and there were many new things, you know, new acts, or uh, artists that had new, new, new records. And as we always try to take a picture of what's caught in the music scene every year, we decided, okay, let's expand to two to weekends, and then we can include all these new artists or new uh, acts or artists that have released new, new, new work in the lineup. Because we didn't want to come back with a lineup that was two years old. So we're going over the, the bridge now. This is a bridge that links kind of the two parts of the festival. Yes. Did you always have the second part or was that added a bit later as well? That was added in, I guess it was 2018. And it's a way of adding another 15, 20,000 capacity areas. And for example, during this weekend we will have, I think it's Charlie XCX here. There's a lot of people that are wondering how they're going to run from Dua Lipa's set to Charlie XCX's set. <laughs> you know, we have the shows that we have during both weekends and the shows we had in the, the city. We had uh, 678 shows. So, obviously, it's, it's impossible to, to go to everything. And there will always be things that clash at the same time. But uh, what we want people to do is to make their their own festival and their, their own lineup for example we have some smaller stages there which are specialized in uh, indie acts and new bands and there are people who go there and don't leave that that uh, area during the festival their interest is in that sort of shows and we love that because that means that even as we grow, our audience uh, keeps uh, a similar profile at the very beginning. That is people who love music and who want to discover new things. So we've just crossed over the bridge. We're on our way to the beach. Tell us about this part of the festival. This area is uh, specialised in electronic music and trap, new trap acts and, and hip-hop and we also had uh, a K-pop uh, band playing here with Dreamcatcher and it was really really fun to see a very, uh, very young audience totally crazy when they got on, on stage. This uh, area we want to have a, a somewhere where uh, people if uh, who don't want to stay all the time at the at the main stage can, can come here and listen or dance to music and 
and be in a calmer area. It's got quite an amazing sort of scenery as well. You're right on the beach here and you get a really good view of all kind of the, the mountains as well. Yeah, the, the scenery here is, is amazing. We covered the, the beach with a layer so the sand doesn't get into everyone's uh, feet <laughs> because we wanted to make it as, as comfortable as possible. And as it's mainly an electronic music stage and people dance to the music that uh, is it's happening here, it's quite comfortable, although it's on the beach. Got a bit of a soft landing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed as well, so, you know, this is your big birthday year as well, 20 years. Are you doing anything particular to celebrate apart from having two massive weekends? <laughs> For us, all of this is a celebration of our 20th anniversary. We had to postpone twice. We tried to make everything special this weekend. We have uh, painstakingly taken attention to detail of many different things. We wanted to pay an homage to, to the music clubs in the city that were heavily hit by COVID. Uh, and that's why we, we had 150 shows between weekends. And we did, uh, that was paid by us and many artists, most of the artists who were already playing in the weekends wanted to be there as, uh, as well. And for example, it's amazing to have uh, Megan Thee Stallion or Beck playing uh, at a club, but also uh, Kingy's are playing every day at different clubs. That's that's so crazy and amazing, and, and doing that different set list every day. Uh, so it, it's amazing that when you realize how how powerful is is music. We don't want to be a festival that just uh, runs for two or three days and and then nothing else happens. That's why we try to bring part of the festival to the city, and that's uh, something that we we are doing at every other festival we have in, in Porto, the new festivals in Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, Santiago and Buenos Aires, we are also bringing part of the festival to the city. Now, you guys obviously had to take a bit of a pause for a few years due to the pandemic. How does it feel being back? And I guess what kind of new challenges, you've obviously upscaled quite a lot in this time, what kind of challenges has that brought as well? If the, this horrible pandemic, if we could take a positive thing from it, is that it gave us at least one year to stop and think what we want to be as a company or how the company would, should look like in three, four, five, ten years. So we put all the team to work on new ideas, what we could do next. Part of, of that is uh, all these new festivals. We had already announced in 2019 that we, we were opening a festival in Los Angeles, but uh, then we decided, okay, let's go to South America. Because we, we have a lot of people flying from South America every year, and we spoke with uh, local players there and, and with media there and to make sure that it made sense, and it made sense to us, so that's one of the things we, we were working on. And also, we have a backlog of, I don't know, dozens of projects that we, we want to tackle in the next few years. So we have plenty of ideas for the develop our, our company. This is uh, one of the ideas that came from our team. 
That is, why don't we test to power a stage just with batteries? So that's what Plenitude is? Yes, Plenitude is an energy company. We went to them and told them, can you do that? Is it feasible? Is it possible uh, technically? And so it's a pilot test. These batteries are uh, certified that are charged with uh, clean energies. By now, uh, powering large stages is, is not feasible yet. We would like to encourage uh, energy companies to research and invest on research to improve this. This is the main stage. It's actually a twin stage. So that time that uh, lapses from one band, one artist to another, is uh, as short as possible. And this is, I mentioned before, that it has a capacity of up to 65,000 people. So that's quite clever. So basically what we're looking at now is two stages. They're side by side, which might seem crazy, but... Because <laughs> I remember in years previously, it was on the same site, but they were opposite each other. Yes. So why did you bring them side by side? Because as we were increasing a bit uh, the capacity uh, this year, we have acts this year such as Dua Lipa or Gorillas, and we had 60,000 people watching Gorillas the other day. By doing this, uh, our production team reassured us that, that it would be safe and would be comfortable. We're kind of talking about the fact that we have increased the capacity this year. I guess what have the challenges been of having, you know, another sort of 20,000 people? And I guess, do you ever think, OK, this is the cut-off point or kind of what are the conversations that are being had about that? Actually, the venue has a capacity of, we could go up to a bit more of 100,000. But we didn't want to sell beyond uh, an 85,000 capacity because we were a bit concerned that with 100,000 people, maybe we didn't want to go from 65,000 on 2019 to 100,000 all, all the way. I think that we will keep at the same level for some years and, until we, we learn how to improve the comfort of the venue. It seemed that during the pandemic for a few months it, it looked like that uh, entertainment would go digital forever and fortunately it looks like that people and us, we are all eager to go back to having a, a live uh, music experience again and sharing with more people the energy that uh, is generated by an artist performing a, on a stage. We are opening again after a very difficult two, two years and it's so exciting to see everyone, the artists, the audience, being so excited about going back to, to live music, to having a live music experience, a physical live music experience. Really, really exciting. And finally, Deborah Gabinetti launched the Bali International Film Festival, also known as Balenale, of course, in 2007. Since then, the festival has featured hundreds of Indonesian and international films and spurred Hollywood productions to film in Bali with movies like Eat, Pray, Love. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant spoke with Gabinetti to hear about this year's Balenale and to learn more about Indonesia's film industry. 
So I thought by starting a festival where I could invite international filmmakers to, you know, screen their films to a potentially huge market, I could also introduce them to, you know, the capabilities of the Indonesian film industry and introduce them to Indonesian filmmakers and hopefully get them to explore some of the locations and the story ideas that Indonesia offers. But this year we'll, we will present 63 films from 26 countries. We're quite excited about the uh, program that we have. Uh, we have many premieres, which is wonderful, and just a wide variety of genre styles and, and languages, of course. And for audiences who are maybe more familiar with Hollywood or Western films, how would you characterize the Indonesian film industry? And are there any Indonesian filmmakers that you think that they should really know about? There are some wonderful documentaries, Saludin uh, Siragar, he did uh, Land Beneath the Fog. There's, of course, horror and action films. It's very much an Indonesia favorite. And uh, there's a new one that's coming out by Cornelia Sonny uh, called Death Knot. The work of the late Richard O. Melancholy is a Movement. It's a wonderful film. Amazing female filmmakers uh, doing some really outstanding work. Camila Andini uh, has Before, Now, and Then with the film Nana that's just doing the festival circuit now. Are there any developments that you're seeing right now in the Indonesian film industry that you're excited about for the future? Uh, very much so. I'm seeing much more, I want to say experimentation is there. Many more new talent, so first-time filmmakers. Yeah, upcoming talent is there. For the industry itself, there are co-production opportunities that are being, you know, explored. And we have several filmmakers that have come and visited and looked at locations and kind of looked at some of the story ideas. One particular project that we're quite excited about is the story of Matahari, the famous spy and temptress who had lived in Indonesia for several years. And we feel that she was inspired by Indonesia, certainly the dance and the costume. And that is being developed with uh, Roland Joffe, um, The Mission and The Killing Fields, two Academy Award winning films. And that is currently in development and that will be shot, a great deal of that, hopefully the majority of it will be shot in Indonesia using, of course, Indonesian talent and creatives, uh, locations. Uh, but there are other things that are, are being uh, developed, some in the earlier stages. And how have you seen movie going in Bali or in Indonesia change since you got there? I remember the last time we spoke, you had this wonderful story about uh, the school children coming into the cinema. Maybe you could tell that again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, honestly a very important part of our commitment, let's say, to the community is to expose as many people to that you know, wonderful experience of the, the, the communal experience of being uh, in the cinema. And when we first uh, launched the festival, we had some children's programs. If I'm not mistaken, I think this one was from Disney. And we invited the local orphanages to come. And I, you know, just thought this was a, a nice gesture on our part. We invited some of the school children as well, of course, from the local schools. Didi Petat, a senior Indonesian actor, was hosting the program. And he was in front of the screen and just introducing the film to the children there. And and he was asking a question like, you know, how many of you have been inside of cinema, you know, bioscope? And I just thought to myself, what a silly question as I'm standing in the back of the cinema. And 
Honestly, maybe 99% of the children put their hand up that they had never been inside a cinema. And I was just so moved by that. And then when the lights, you know, went down, of course, you could almost sense the fear or the anticipation. And then the lights came up and they just all kind of like leaned forward into the screen. And it was just one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. So we continue to do that. And we usually end the program on the children's, you know, the family program, because uh, it's a wonderful way for us to start. And it keeps us, you know, passionate and motivated to continue. That was Bali International Film Festival founder Deborah Gabinetti in conversation with Naomi Zhu Elegant. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to Michael Booth, Paige Reynolds and Naomi Zhu Elegant. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu. And Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.